From the University of Colorado Boulder in the Rocky Mountains, this is CU at the Libraries, where information becomes knowledge through storytelling. I'm your host, Alan Van Hoy, Government Information and Civic Literacy Librarian with the University Libraries. In 2020, we have real-time access to a historic amount of information. With millions of active websites and billions of online users, the issue is not about the quantity of information, but about the quality. Who is verifying content, and how do we identify reliable sources? There aren't easy answers to these questions, but there are skills and tools that can help. Librarians call this information literacy. Information literacy can help us identify the context and value of information and help us recognize if it's misleading, out of date, or false. On this episode of CU at the Libraries, we navigate the vast landscape of information and misinformation with two CU Boulder faculty researchers, Assistant Professor of Advertising, Public Relations, and Media Design, Toby Hopp, and Political Science Associate Professor and Women and Gender Studies Faculty Associate, Michelle Ferguson. Together, we'll discuss the significance of information literacy in 2020 and offer tools for how to evaluate the facts presented to you in the classroom, in the media, online, in person, or anywhere. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you'll stay with us. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Toby. Hey, Alan. Thank you for joining us. The first question that we have today is, how did the digital age change how we go about our research? When you think about the digital age, we're thinking about perhaps the last 20 years or so when the introduction and diffusion of home computing systems and later smartphones and so on and so forth. And so obviously the diffusion of these technologies, the spread of these interconnected digital devices has made information a lot more accessible to us. And so you think about research on the level of just regular person trying to learn about the world around them, there's information that's accessible anytime we want, which is great. The downside is is the quality of that information is not always so good. I mean, we can find information that confirms our biases. We can find information that misleads us or is used in a way that is unhelpful for democratic purposes, that can confuse us as consumers. And so when we think about what does the digital age mean for research as a regular person? It's a bit of a mixed bag. So I was a college student and a graduate student in the 90s, and a lot of the research that I did was physically in the library, and it involved a lot of photocopying, a lot of photocopying. (laughs) And, you know, because there weren't PDFs of articles that you could just take with you. And so not having to do that It certainly saves me a lot of time that I can just download journal articles whenever I want them. But there's an element of serendipity that you lose when you're not in the actual library, right? You you miss out on finding a book that you didn't even realize existed that's on the shelf next to the one that you were looking for. You know, and I think that that's, it's a kind of a loss, right, that, that we can't do that. And especially right now with COVID-19, where we can't even go into Norland, even if we wanted to, and get a book off the shelf. It's a limit to our research, even as a lot of other things have been made easier. Something that I think about, too, is in the past, you could go to a library and get journal articles, whereas now a lot of scholarly journal articles are behind paywalls. And I think that that's a significant shift in the way that we access research 
a lot of times students use Google to access information and run into a paywall. I talk about Google a lot because students, but people in general, really prefer Google as a search engine. And I always try to remind them Google is a product. It's not there for the benefit of your existence. It's there to sell you something. And in some cases, it's selling your own information. And I think that that's a, a really important distinction. And I think that that kind of leads me to the next question, which is, why do you think information discernment and evaluation have become such a challenge in contemporary information contexts? Yeah, well, I, I was just about to say, it's what Toby has been talking about. It's about the quantity of information that's out there. Right? It used to be that three major networks produced their nightly news hours, and most Americans would watch whatever the channel was that they were used to watching, but they would be getting their news sources from the same groups of people. And now we actually have so many different news sources available to us, not just the networks, cable TV, different kinds of websites that have popped up that have varying degrees of journalism integrated into their missions. So there's just so much to consume that can be really good, but it can be overwhelming. It's also a question of the quality of what we have out there the kind of media that we have today, whether we're talking about online or more traditional print media or televisual approaches, is deeply invested in entertainment. The line between media and entertainment is not always clear. And that's in part because in order to stay in business, companies need to keep your attention, need to keep your eyeballs on the screen. So there's much more of a confusion, I think, between simply presenting information or presenting a point of view and trying to keep consumers consuming. I think that those are all really important points. You know, I like to think of the media environment as sort of an ecosystem. Things go awry, right? And the media ecosystem has suffered really dramatic shocks over the last 15 or 20 years. Newspapers, are really in financial trouble. And a lot of that's due to ownership structures and changes to how people consume media. We see the emergence of these really large media conglomerates that own many news properties. We see things like the withdrawal of news organizations from local markets. And so all of these shocks that have occurred in the media ecosystem have created these incentives for keeping people on platforms. And so, so much of the way that we had maybe previously approached learning about the world around us through the media, so much of that has been reframed by a variety of different forces that creates real challenges for the regular person when they attempt to learn about current events, the things happening in the world that are important to them. And so when you think about discernment, the ability to make credibility decisions about the information that we consume. There's an emphasis on us, you know, having these sort of new world skills, the ability to have these literacy capabilities that reflect the complex digital environment. Yeah, I think those are some really interesting points. Adding to that complexity is the ability to access primary scholarly sources cited by those news organizations. And then we take something like COVID-19 that's happening right now, and a lot of that research is behind a paywall. And so I think that that makes the idea of fake news or misinformation a lot more powerful because the ability to actually fact check sometimes is behind a paywall. And that sort of leads into the next question. As librarians, we often try to stay away from terminology like fake news and alternative facts. How does the language we use around information affect how we perceive information and misinformation? 
yeah, I mean, the term fake news does create a variety of different types of problems. Some research has shown that just using the phrase fake news frames the traditional news media in such a way that people are less likely to believe it. And so the concept of fake news or the phraseology is problematic in that sense. Most of what we call fake news isn't actually 100% false. It tends to be misleading or hyperpartisan. It omits certain details, but it's not outright untrue. In my research, I've been referring to what we might quickly call fake news as countermedia. And the reason that I call it countermedia is that these sort of low-quality, quote-unquote, fake news organizations, what they're really trying to do is present an alternate or countering version of the reality that's described by the traditional mass media. So this idea of countering, here's a different way of understanding the world around you, and that it's not entirely true, doesn't really matter. This is existing almost in an alternate reality, but that alternate reality is, of course, useful for certain types of politicians, for certain types of policies. I mean, the cat's out of the bag. We're going to have this phrase in popular discourse. And I just, I don't see it going away. So I would think about this a little differently than Toby is thinking about it. When I hear the phrase fake news, what that implies to me is that there is news that is true and completely trustworthy. And what worries me about that kind of language is that if you buy into the idea that a certain subset of information is fake, then what you are accepting is that other information is on its face true and trustworthy. We should be critically challenging all of the information that we take in from whatever sources we're taking it in from. Part of the political motivation in labeling somebody's information as fake is to try to then have the viewer or the listener or the reader understand that that me, the person who's calling that stuff fake, I am the one you can trust. My news is the correct news. My news is not biased. And I think once we start accepting that a particular news source is true on its face, then we have abdicated our responsibility as citizens to really be more critical of what we're hearing and to try to get our information in part by thinking for ourselves, right? Rather than trusting that any one source is gonna always be correct. With the news cycle, stories can sometimes be misreported or the facts of the story need to be corrected later on as more information becomes learned. And that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about, that we really want to be able to question whether or not what we learned initially is in fact the truth of a situation and not simply abdicate our ability to think critically about what we're consuming. That is a really powerful point, Michelle. And I think that's a new way for me to think about the idea of fake news. So I really appreciate that point. Hi, I'm Micah Abram, the Director of Development at the University Libraries. Are you interested in supporting all of the great work we've highlighted in See You at the Libraries? Your donation can help us digitize more of the diverse collections from our archives or engage students with innovative resources. 
Join us in leading the way to an information-empowered world by giving to the Dean's Endowment Fund. Go to colorado.edu slash libraries. Scroll to the end of the page and click Support the Libraries. Thank you. You're listening to See You at the Libraries, where information becomes knowledge through storytelling. I'm speaking with CU Boulder faculty experts, Toby Hopp and Michelle Ferguson about information literacy in 2020. We've discussed the challenges of evaluating information online in contemporary settings. Now we offer practical tools for how to process and evaluate information responsibly. So I'm gonna move into our next question. And I think it sort of relates to what we've been talking about. Based on your research and observations about information habits, how are you thinking about the impact of media and online communities in this current presidential election? So with people communicating with each other more and more online because of COVID-19, we're partly just going to have to wait and see what the impact is of that on our ability to communicate about political ideas. So one of the things that researchers have found over the years is that it's actually easier to depersonalize your opponent or dehumanize your opponent, treat them as if they're just an enemy rather than a human being when you're interacting with them online. And so disagreements online can become really heightened emotionally very quickly and really conflictual rather than collaborative in comparison with face-to-face interactions. Maybe as we're doing this more and more, we actually become better at humanizing the faces on our Zoom call or the people that we're emailing with because we recognize that this is how we have to communicate. So my expectation is that people will actually have a harder time dealing with political disagreements in the short run, but maybe in the long run, one of the things that comes out of the pandemic is actually that we become more aware of how we tend to dehumanize others when we're interacting with them online, virtually, not face-to-face. Well, I mean, yeah, I I agree. I think historically, and I think this is still true, the main way that we learn about the world around us in terms of political or large-scale social things is via the media. But of course, the media has many different things. It's many different actors with different incentives. When you think about how does this concept of the media intersect with online communities that form, whether it's on social media or in other ways, these communities help shape our understanding of the news. And so there are important ways that these communities can shape our political outcomes, both in positive and negative ways. When we think about the media, it doesn't influence us directly. It influences us through the conversations that we have with other folks. And so I think understanding both the media as a provider of information and then the communities that we're involved with in terms of discussion and so on and so forth is also shaping our knowledge in important ways. So we've been talking a lot about, you know, some of the sort of overarching themes when it comes to media and fake news in the election. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about what individual citizens can do to counter the negative impacts of misinformation or counterinformation. And if you could speak a little bit about to what degree is it individual citizens' responsibility to work against misinformation? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, emotionality dimension is really important here. 
these sources of so-called fake news or disinformation, misinformation, whatever we want to call it, they oftentimes use linguistically very emotionally evocative words. And so it's really seeking to extract from us a strong, effective response. And sometimes the things, to be clear, that we see in the news are going to upset us and make us mad. We want to distinguish between sort of upsetting facts and then language that's used purposefully to drive an angry or frustrated or some other sort of negative emotional state in us. And we're talking about whose responsibility is this? Well, it's all of our responsibility. It's an individual's responsibility, but it's also the responsibility of social media platforms and it's responsibility of our government. It's a responsibility that we share, that we have to work together to clean up our information environment. And so while the individual citizen, yes, needs to take steps to ensure that they're making decisions based on factual and objective information. We can't say, oh, well, the social media platforms have no role in this, or that the government has no regulatory responsibilities. It's a shared responsibility. It's a complicated problem. And if we always say that it's someone else's responsibility to fix, then we're never going to fix the problem. I think that there's nothing about the new media environment that makes us less responsible or more responsible now than we would have been a generation or two ago to assess the information that we're receiving and make informed decisions for voting. The thing I would say people can do is to really think about how stories that they are reading or considering reposting or retweeting make them feel. There's a phenomenon called confirmation bias, right, where we tend to be biased towards believing information, believing stories that confirm our worldview already. And so if I don't like a particular politician and I read a story that makes me outraged at that particular politician, some crazy thing that he or she did today, then I should maybe take a step back and say, well, did that really happen, <laughs> right? First of all, right? Or is this story trying to make me feel outrage and trying to appeal to me because of views that I already hold? Or is my response actually a completely measured, appropriate response to the story? We have a responsibility to think carefully about how we are being entertained, by the media that we're consuming, by the stories that we're consuming, and then also to think about what that means for which stories we're going to encourage other people to read in our feeds, and whether or not we should be putting some context around those stories when we share them. Thank you. I think those are some really good points. To sort of expand on this idea of what can individuals do, how can communities and institutions of higher education influence and shape the information environments that we are collectively building? Universities are a great place for students to learn about political disagreement and how to engage with different kinds of political views from the ones that they hold. That is not just an important skill set for engaging in democracy, it's also a part of information literacy, right? Understanding the different kinds of political positions in our culture can help you to understand what the motivations might be for a particular opinion writer to be taking a position on an issue. It's not just a question of what's the truth or what are the facts in the story, but it's also about understanding what the ideas are that people hold so dearly that are motivating them to act in a particular kind of a way or to push for a particular set of policies. 
that's, I think, a very important role for universities to play. And I would just add one thing to that. Mm -hmm. um, one important thing that universities do is communicate to students the rights and responsibilities of being a citizen, of being a member of society. One thing that sometimes worries me with young folks is that there is an expectation that society just recreates itself, that everything goes along and it's all just going to be fine. But the reality is, is that this might not turn out fine. And so we have an obligation as community members, as citizens, as members of society to ensure that this is a good place to live. That responsibility falls on all of us. And I, you know, I hope that that's what we're teaching young folks at the University of Colorado Boulder. So information literacy is the idea of like we can understand the information that we consume and we can evaluate it in an effective way. And so I'm wondering if you have some final points or some specific tools that you use when you're consuming media. One of the most important things that I do when I am especially looking at down ballot races or looking at ballot initiatives is First of all, I go to the League of Women Voters website. It's a nonpartisan organization that hosts debates between candidates for local races, that provides nonpartisan information about local issues. And so especially for students who may not be up on all of the particular candidates running for city council, it's a really great way to become informed about races that have a significant impact on your life here in Boulder or in Colorado, but that you might not otherwise be able to find reliable information about, right? So for a lot of local races, you can find candidates' websites or information that the candidate is producing themselves, say, in response to a query from a local newspaper like the Daily Camera. But to have that information actually produced by a nonpartisan organization whose aim is to educate voters is totally different. But I would also say it's important to have at your command some fact-checking websites. There are newspapers like the Washington Post that regularly fact-check politicians' statements, but there are also, again, nonpartisan organizations that will fact-check so that you can actually have some sense that the information that you are receiving has been vetted, evaluated by some people who know about those particular issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all of that voting decisions can oftentimes be very difficult to make. And oftentimes they become most difficult when we're thinking about local candidates. And, you know, as weird as it sounds, right, the local folks are the ones that have the most immediate effect on our sort of day-to-day -day existence. And so, you know, looking for nonpartisan, locally-based sources can really help inform those decisions. More broadly, when I talk about information evaluation to my students, I like to really emphasize this notion of like mental buckets, right? So we've got these little buckets inside our head and we can put information in these buckets and that can help shape the way that we interpret what's being discussed in this particular bit of information. And so the first step is, well, what type of source are we dealing with? Is it an academic peer-reviewed journal? Is it a large newspaper? Is it a local newspaper? Is it partisan media? Is it a source that we've never heard of before that's using highly evocative emotional language? Well, if we start to separate information on the basis of its type, then we can start to make better decisions about what's trustworthy, what's credible, and what may not be. And so 
we know that the scholarly literature has certain strengths and certain weaknesses. We know that the newspaper has certain strengths and certain weaknesses. We know that pseudo news sites that we've never heard of before that are telling us to be outraged, probably we shouldn't be paying too much attention to. We know that the partisan media HuffPo or Fox News or whatever it might be, is going to present issues in a pretty slanted way that is designed to report favorably on one party to the detriment of another. And so once we start to separate things and put them in buckets, that can shape how we make sense of the information environment, generally speaking. I think that the points that you all made are really important. And the point that I really want to focus on is access. I think as libraries, it's really important that we have access to a lot of things that you might not realize. So for example, we have access through the university libraries to the daily camera, in addition to some other major newspapers. And so I would say something that's really important to me is, is realizing that if you are having trouble accessing information, we as librarians can help you access that information. And without telling you what's best necessarily, that's a decision that you have to make but we can help you access that information. And it's really important to us. And as a government information librarian, that's sort of the core of my job is to help people access government information. And so if you need help getting access or finding something, librarians, whether they're academic librarians here at the university or public librarians have a real passion for bringing access to the people. Thank you both for being here. And it was really great to talk to you. Thank you, Alan and Toby. Thank you. (laughs) As critical participants in our communities, we have a responsibility to independently analyze, check, and judge the information we receive. This is a complicated process that requires a healthy dose of skepticism. We know this is a complex topic and it is nearly impossible to address all of the nuances. So the libraries have put together a series of research guides available on our website. There, you'll find research guides on information literacy, critical media, and the 2020 election. As a Federal Depository Regional Library, we have a large collection of government documents open to the public. We are happy to help you access information about our democracy. Claire Woodcock wrote and produced this episode. Mark Losey is our editor. CU Boulder student Nikhil Thapa composed our theme music. Special thanks to Carolyn Sinkinson, Kate Tallman, and Carolyn Moreau for consulting on this episode. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on your go-to streaming service. And while you're there, rate the show and leave us a review. I've been your host, Alan Van Hoy. Thank you so much for tuning in. We can't wait to see you at the library.